This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning, Bridgetown. What an honor to not only be with you again, but also to be joining and partnering with you in what God is declaring and what God has been dreaming of for the city of Portland. And so I am deeply humbled and honored. But before we start, I have to honor uh, my wife, Molly, and my daughter, Mura, named after Murica. <laughs> Just kidding, it's actually Mira. But lately, my southern accent, I was born, in North, born and raised in North Carolina, it's been coming out and they noticed, my wife and daughter noticed that I've been saying Mira lately. And so they double dared me to actually say that from the stage. So this is for you at home. Because how many of you know, before I'm a preacher, I am a father. And so I wanted to honor them uh, in that this morning. But that's a great segue for us to think about family and to think about the household of the faith and the zeal of the father, which is only uh, uh, matched or maybe even exceeded by the zeal of the son who has zeal for his father's house. And so we're gonna talk today about the house of prayer for all nations and where prayer and justice meet and how we can enter in to the zealous work of the father and the son in doing that. Uh, before we do that, I, I'd like to pray one more time. If you would humor me and just place your hand on your head and say, Father, Give me the mind of Christ. Now just place your hand on your heart and say, Holy Spirit, fill me with wisdom, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Let a spirit of might be released in our midst. Right now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In the Gospels, we hear this incredible story that in the context of social justice movements and political polarization and civil unrest, we, we hear this reference often in faith-based justice movements, this uh, seminal moment in biblical history where Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the answer of generations who were looking for a Messiah, the Jewish people who were living under Roman oppression, looking for someone who would come and revolutionize everything, that uh, this Jesus who would march in, uh, they didn't know it was Jesus, but this Messiah who would come and who would change everything in a moment by his mere presence. And he comes in in a way that no one expects. He comes in low on a donkey and then he visits the synagogue. And the first thing that he does in the temple is he fashions a, a, a whip, this cord, and he goes in and he drives out the money changers. He, he drives out the merchants and he turns over tables. He's zealous and, and the disciples, when they saw the, the, the fire with which he addressed the religious leaders of the day and the way that he came in and he just uh, un, unhinged, Jesus completely unhinged, they were reminded of a prophecy that in the book of John it says they, were, they remembered zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the Jews, they asked him, they asked him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? What gives you the authority to do this? How are you calling this your house? How are you telling them what this house is supposed to be? And he says in John 2 verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews says, well, it's taking you 46 years. It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And yet you say you'll raise it up in three days. But he was not speaking of a tabernacle or a temple that was made with human hands. He was speaking of his body. And so Jesus comes and he says, this physical temple that you're in here uh, uh, doing all the programs, you have all the merchants, you have all the systems and the structures, you're charging people to get in here, you're, you're making a profit off of the pain of the people, they're coming to the house of the Lord because they wanna find healing, they wanna find deliverance, they wanna find God himself, they want to access heaven, and yet you're charging them for the access, and on top of that, you're giving them all the physical things that you think they need, but the one thing that they actually need is not what you are doing in here. You're making Making it a house of trading, but I'm here to tell you, and Matthew, Matthew records what he says. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. This is not a shopping mall. This is not a good governmental program. This house will be a house of prayer, and it won't just be a house of prayer for people that look like you, for people who vote like you, for people who think like you, for people who have the same socioeconomic status, for people who can afford to, to buy some sort of uh, penance from me. He says, this will be a house of prayer for all peoples, all nations. Can you imagine the fire with which, with which Jesus has when he comes in and he sees his father's house being desecrated. So he used really intense language. He says, you hypocrites, you den of snakes, you robbers, you thieves. 
I'm coming in here to, to define for you what is written that this house will be a house of prayer. And it will be a house of prayer for all nations. But he redefines the house not as a physical place made by human hands, but as a house made out of a body, his body. And in 1 Peter 2, it says that us coming to him, us, the living stone rejected by men, you yourselves like living stones, everyone say living stones. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, Mark eleven seventeen, he taught them saying, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. That word nations is found in scripture as ethnos. According to Keith Scoville, a bibliographer, he says that 41% of the occurrences of ethnos as nations in the Bible are negative. When we read and we see ethnos in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, nations usually is, is postured as something that is, to, is, is not really celebrated. It's kind of held in low esteem in the Bible, and partly that's because the nations come with the ethnos, with the cultures and the people groups, come their religions, uh, come their idols, come their uh, pagan practices, and so Israel was encouraged to drive out the nations in order to take the land, and so we see these negative connotations in the Old Testament, but it also says that 28% of the word nations in the Bible are used in a positive manner, particularly in the New Testament. And then 31% are neutral, meaning the nations were watching what God was doing with Israel, and there was no real indication as to how they were being viewed uh, by the Hebrew writers. So Jesus comes, and he takes this negative thing of people who are outside of the Abrahamic promise in the covenant of Israel, people who are not Jewish, and he begins to say, he begins to say, no, my house is for everybody. It's not just for the Jews. And this is particularly interesting when we get to where it is written, when Jesus says it is written, where was it written? And we can look in Isaiah, and I love to preach from Isaiah. In fact, the more you hear me preach, the more you'll probably hear me preach from Isaiah. I love Isaiah because Isaiah saw the Lord more clearly than any of the prophets, I believe. He saw Jesus in, in almost every passage of the book of Isaiah. There is a clear and unique and specific description of the man Jesus, not only who he is, what he looks like, his authority, but what he would do in the earth. And so I love it when we think about Isaiah and we see that uh, 700 years before Jesus lived in the 8th century BC, he saw him and he declared him. In Isaiah 2, he, he talks about uh, Jesus as the one who, whose uh, mountain is glorious and would be exalted as chief among the mountains in the last days. In Isaiah 6, we see the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple. And out of that encounter, out of Isaiah seeing Jesus, 
Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. This is a principle for us that I'll talk about in just a minute, but we cannot be sent unless we see. Every biblical prophet, every prophetic people, God always makes an issue of their sight first. Jeremiah, what do you see? Zechariah, what do you see? Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And in light of seeing Jesus, he saw his own humanity and his own uh, uh, brokenness. And he says, oh, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. Oh no, I see my brokenness. I can see all of my cultural wirings that make me biased and make me want to be tribal and to cling to this and, and to deny my brokenness in this area and the way I've treated people and the way I've been wired. God, I see, I am unclean. Touch my lips and purge me. So one of the first works of justice has to hinge upon a revelation of who Jesus is and a revelation, a reality check of where we are in light of his holiness. In Isaiah 9, he declares that a child would be given. In Isaiah 42, he declares Jesus as the man justice. It says, behold my servant, my elect one, upon whom I have placed my spirit, for he will bring justice to the nations. In Isaiah 58, we see the fast that that, uh, lets the oppressed go go free. It breaks the yoke of oppression. In Isaiah 61, we see the spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus. Jesus to declare liberty to the captive. We can go on and on and on. Isaiah saw Jesus and we must see him in order to be sent. In other words, we need a fullness revelation and an eternal perspective if we're going to step into the work of justice. We need a fullness revelation. And so if you look with me in Isaiah 56 verse 1, the passage that was just read, Through the prophet Isaiah, and I'm reading from, I believe the New King James Version, possibly the English Standard. Either way, it's the Bible. (laughs) Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. For bless is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. If we were to stop there, the first thing that we can take away from verse one is that justice and righteousness is an eschatological imperative. Those are big words, what does that mean? Justice and righteousness, it says, keep justice and do do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be fully revealed. The book of Revelation means the revealing. Everything that we are doing and fighting for today All of the injustices that are in the earth today, everything that we want to see shift and change and transition, we must see it in light of a fullness reality that is not yet, but that is coming. He says, I am coming as king. The kingdom of heaven is coming on the earth. There is a real king sitting upon a real throne. 
And the throne has foundations. Throne language represents government. The king is the king, the potentate, the ruler of a real government that has real legislative structure and systems in the way the kingdom of God functions. And God is bringing that kingdom upon the kingdoms of the earth. The kingdoms of of this age shall become the kingdoms of our God. And so you and I who now we're born in the kingdoms of this world and we navigate and we move through it. We actually are citizens of that kingdom now. Are you with me? And so what happens is he says, <laughs> nice pregnant pause. For soon my salvation will come. And you and I have to live in light of and with an urgency of the reality of that coming king. And the foundations of that kingdom are justice and righteousness in in Psalm 89, 14. And so in order to, to, to really live in light of eternity, we have to have a culture created and cultivated in our lives of connecting to that kingdom reality more than we're connecting to the realities of what's going on in this this earth realm. Does that make sense? So prayer becomes the, the portal, so to speak, that gives us communion, access, and fellowship to the king and the coming kingdom. Now, in the book of Revelation, verse 19, John describes this king as the one sitting on the throne. Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, there was a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. It goes on and it describes his eyes like a flame of fire. It says on his head there are many crowns and diadems and that he has a name written that no one knows but, he, but himself. In other words, he has a tattoo that only he knows what that tattoo says. He's clothed in a robe that's dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have to understand that before we uh, uh, can step out with any action of bringing the kingdom of God, we have to understand that God is more zealous for the justice issues and to make wrong things right than you and I could ever be. And he's coming back not on a donkey, but on a white horse in full heavenly array. And it says his robe is dipped in blood and he will actually execute vengeance on the systems of injustice on the earth that you and I have fought in in our day and in our time to overturn. We're gonna accomplish a measure of it, but he's gonna bring the fullness dimension of it. And when he does, it says there will be blood. So we have to walk 
as those in the earth who are not necessarily just so weak and broken on the earth that we're just like, oh, you know what, uh, Governor, will you, please, uh, will you please not legislate in that way anymore? Will you please? No, we walk as ambassadors with authority from heaven to say, listen, we want justice today. This system has to change. We're going to work for this structure to change right now because we need the earth to begin to look like heaven. But if it doesn't, be warned, O king and rulers, there is a judge who will judge you. Do you hear me? So, in verse 2, it says, Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast. This is a generational transfer. One generation, a man who does it, the son of man, their sons and daughters who keep this and hold this fast. And it says, keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. We need an ancestral understanding. In other words, we need to enter into the understanding that our ancestors had of Jesus as the king. This is Black History Month, and I stand in front of you as an heir of those who by faith understood the lordship and the kingship of Jesus. I may have mentioned this here before, but the reality is that my ancestors in chains could not take to the streets and boycott they could not march when they were in the deep, uh, hot fields slavering, slaving in, in Mississippi. They had no ability to work for their own freedom. The only place that they could actually work for justice was in the place of prayer. So they had a revelation that if they could not be free one day, their children's children could be free. So they would pray and they would groan in intercession and prayer all night long. They would work all day, get maybe an hour or two of sleep, and then whatever time they had left, they were talking to God through the night. Oh God, release justice on the earth. God, bring freedom. So prayer was not a place of passivity. It was an active work of actually accomplishing justice in the spirit when we could not do it with our hands. And there was something on the inside of them that carried a revelation of the goodness and the justice of God. And so this says, to keep justice, we have to keep the Sabbath. A justice that proceeds not from just a principle of rest, but from a place or a dimension of rest that is found in the place of revelation. In other words, my ancestors, when they could not work with their physical hands to get free, what they could do is rest in the freedom that is found through the revelation that Jesus will somehow bring freedom in the way that he can, in the timing that he can. Does that make sense? And so we rest or keep the Sabbath by entering into a revelation of the finished work of Jesus through the cross. We rest by entering into a revelation of the victory of Jesus over the darkness in the world. Right now, there are social justice movements where people have been going hard for the last three, four, five years, and one of the most popular phrases in the justice movements when you talk to people who have been working for justice is they go, well, I'm tired. Well, how's the black community feel? Well, we're tired. I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. Well, there's a place for being tired. There's a place for acknowledging being tired. But in the kingdom, he says, 
if you want to do justice, keep the Sabbath. In other words, enter my rest and get untired. Let me refresh you. Rest in my finished work and not the power of what you can accomplish through your human ingenuity or human emotion. So he says, keep the Sabbath and keep your hands from doing evil. So before you can actually work for justice, you have to be holy. You have to be righteous. I want you to enter into my righteousness. Have clean hands. Ask me to cleanse your heart. And the promise that we have in the rest of God is that his perfect leadership will lead us into the redemption of all things in the fullness of times. But we enter into the rest of God through the spirit of revelation which can only be attained on the mountain of the Lord. Someone say the mountain of the Lord. We ascend the mountain of the Lord through descent in the place of prayer. Now, one popular phrase that I often hear is, JT, I know that you're a prayer movement guy. I know you like to pray. Well, I like to act. I want to work. I don't want to just pray. I want to work. Well, I want to submit to you that prayer is the work. Prayer conceives the work, and prayer is the work that bursts the work. Prayer is the work that sustains the work, and prayer is the work that protects the work. In fact, most people who say, I don't want to just pray, I want to work, they've actually never entered into a realm of prayer where they actually unseated powers and principalities and angels and demons moved at the sound of their voices. They've never seen the power of victory in prayer. See, when we pray, we don't pray as those who just beat the air and we just throw out prayers and hope that maybe something sticks and maybe God heard. When we pray, we pray like Daniel who started a 40-day fast and it says it took him 40 days and when the angel finally arrived, it, said, it says, Daniel, we heard you from the moment you started praying and it says, I began to fight through, uh, through demons. It took me 40 days I was warring in the heavens to get to you to answer your prayer. I'm here to tell you our prayers are not just some nice little rope ritual little thing. We are not those who just pray these empty prayers that have no power. I'm talking about a people of prayer, a, a house of prayer where when we open our mouth, something shifts in the heavens and what looks what it looks like on the earth begins to change because we are legislating with God in the supernatural realm. If you say, I don't want to pray, I want to go do the work, that's because you have never worked in that realm of prayer. God is raising up a people of maturity in the spirit who know how to rise up into the, the realm of government where ancient demons, powers and principalities exist and they are dictating laws, they're dictating cultural norms and traditions on the earth that are disrupting us from entering into our inheritance and walking together and living together as a house of prayer for all nations. Even now, right now, there are demons screaming, ancient demons screaming actually at our, de uh, uh, pulling at the heartstrings at a DNA level for some of us where every time you hear the word uh, racial reconciliation 
reconciliation or every time you talk about justice issues, something inside of you gets uncomfortable because there's something that has had a stronghold on, on the people groups of the earth and particularly here in America. And God is saying, I'm looking for a multi-ethnic, multicultural church who will actually walk out in John 17 oneness. I can release a, a Psalm 133 anointing on them to bless them with power and authority to overthrow generational wickedness. So prayer is the work that first works in us. In Isaiah 2, it says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord will be established as chief among the mountains and all the ethnos, all the nations will flow to the mountain of the Lord and there he will teach us his ways. In Isaiah 56, verse 6, if you look down, if you're still in Isaiah 56, it says, and the foreigners, Isaiah 56, 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without profaning it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. That's the same mountain of Isaiah 2 the place where we get taught his ways. I will bring them to my holy mountain and then I will make them joyful in my house of prayer for the joy of the Lord is our strength. We cannot work without the joy of the Lord. I will make them joyful in prayer. In other words, I will deal with your emotional state. If you are still in trauma from 2020, from a pandemic environment, if you're still traumatized over the political narratives, if you're traumatized over the ethnic, ethno-cultural conflicts and the various, if you're overwhelmed by, by the injustices of the earth, he says, guess what? I have a solution. Foreigners, that means you don't have to be Jewish to come to my mountain. Anybody, if you are a son and a daughter, no matter what your ethno, ethnic background, whether you're African, whether you're Hispanic, Asian, it does not matter what your earthly narratives have been. In my house, everyone has, a, has an identity. In my house, everyone has a seat at the table. In my house, everyone has an inheritance. All the foreigners, come and minister to me. First of all, in prayer, what we do is we minister to the Lord. Before we bring our supplications and our requests, he says, come, minister to me, and I will make you joyful. Just talk to God about who he is. That's what my grandmama, Nim, used to do. I would listen to my great-grandmother's prayers, and 90% of her prayers was thank you. Thank you, God. You're a good God. Ain't nobody like you. You stand alone in glory. Anybody ever heard an old black woman pray? We used to joke, they can get a prayer, they get a prayer through. <laughs> I need to call a woman who can get a prayer through. Thank you, Lord Jesus, there is no one like you. You stand alone in glory. Oh, God of great glory. Or an old black man, an old deacon in my, my church. We sang our prayers. Is that okay, Bridgetown? I know this is a little different. Well, we used to sing our prayers. God of glory, you stand alone. Ain't nobody like you. I love you, Lord. 
you heard my cry. Come on, let's give God a hand clap of praise. We love Jesus. See, this is why we need the house of prayer for all nations. You might learn how to sing your prayers. But the truth of the matter is through prayer, we, we get a change of elevation. Everybody say a change of elevation. He changes our elevation, brings us out of the valley of our despair and puts us in a high place and gives us supernatural wisdom and understanding. Two, he deals with our emotional estate. He confronts our cultural issues. He imparts strength. He gives us fortitude and resilience. Three, he produces a greater surrender in us. says their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted. A surrender happens through the place of prayer. Four, he defines us. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer. He defines us so we clearly know who we are and who we are not. Five, five he releases his heart and he commissions us. He does a change in us. Then he commissions us so that he can bring change through us. And we see this in Acts 2, where they're in a prayer meeting. And he says, wait here until I send the helper and he will give you power to be my disciples and to make disciples in the nations of the earth. So all the Jews from every nation, it says, were in a room. It was a room that was a house of prayer for all nations and they're in this multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational prayer meeting waiting on the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what it was gonna come, what he was gonna come like, what it was gonna sound like, but suddenly tongues of fire begin to fall on the gathering and it says they were bewildered. In Acts 2 verse seven, they were all amazed and they marveled saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born. In other words, we could have sat in this room, I'm from Russia and you're from Mongolia and you're from Zimbabwe and we could sit here and we could try to explain our cultures and talk through our cultural differences and understand our, our unique uh, justice issues or injustice issues. We can sit here and try to have the, the, the conversation, but you can't even understand the language that I'm speaking. So God says, guess what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to release supernatural technology from heaven. And now you can speak not only in one another's language, but you can understand one another. We need a baptism of the Holy Spirit to be able to understand the heart of God and understand one another. And from that place, we're commissioned to the nations with supernatural help. And this has been my story. In 2007, I was pretty much sent out of a local church plant that I was a part of. And the pastor told me that he would pay my salary if I'd give myself to six months of fasting and prayer. He says, I want you to make prayer your full-time job. I said, okay, so I'm spending day in and day out trying to learn how to pray. I pray for 30 minutes. It felt like three hours. And I'm praying, and I, I opened up Psalm 119.18, which says, open up my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your law. 
And I'm sitting here praying, God, I've been in church my whole life and I've loved you pretty much my whole life, but I've, I've never really seen your power like I hear the stories of. And, you know, I'm reading church history and reading about great awakenings and I'm just saying, Lord, open up my eyes that I might behold you. God, I want, I want this word to become real and, and become alive in my life. And, and one day I'm in my room and all of a sudden I hear the small voice of the Lord, but I hear it as clearly as I've ever heard anything in my life. He begins to speak to me about the city that I'm in and he invites me to pray for the city. Out of Jeremiah 29, seven, he says, if the city in which you've been exiled has uh, no welfare, no, no peace, pray for the peace of that city or the welfare of that city and I will also give you welfare. And so suddenly I get commissioned to pray every day for things that are happening in our city, but it was so wild, the very next day I woke up and I hear 19th and college. I was like, 19th and college? What is that? 19th and college. And I'm like, well, that sounds like topographic language, like a map. So, so I Google 19th and college, and it was a real street corner in the city where I lived, but I had been serving in the suburbs. We lived closer into the city in kind of a mixed uh, community where you had young professionals on the left and drug dealers on the right. I mean, it was just this mixed uh, neighborhood that was becoming gentrified. And, and so 19th was further south, kind of on the east side of Indianapolis at that time. And that was an area where people were like, man, the east side is rough. Don't go to the east side. But I hear 19th and college, so I get in my car and I'm obeying the voice of the Lord and I drive to 19th and college and sure enough on the street corner were two dudes with hoodies on and their, their hands in their pockets and I knew what that was because I did gang intervention for many years and I knew these were the dope boys. They were distributing drugs on that corner and I said, well, I'm here at 19th and college. Now what? <laughs> and I'm looking at these guys and I just thought, I should talk to them about Jesus. Little evangelistic tip, if you can think it, do it. And do it immediately because if you don't, you'll talk yourself out of it. So I get out of my car, I start talking to the guys. I'm a little nervous, but I start talking to them. It turns into a three hour conversation. I prayed for both of them to receive Jesus that day. The next day, the next day, I get another coordinate, Broadway and 46th. So I drive to Broadway and 46 and I discover a, a community of, of houseless teenagers from all over the country. One was actually a missing child. She showed me her, a milk carton with her face on it. She had been missing for seven years. And I discovered, I, I entered their space and their world and they begin to take me to all these kind of uh, these camps and these places where they do drugs and sit around and they talk about the deep things in life. And I kind of embedded and, and, and kind of became incarnated within their community, meeting other uh, vagrant wanderers and strung out teenagers. And I just felt like, oh my goodness, I feel like this is what Jesus would be doing right now. Before I knew it, we had 70 people meeting in a very, very small living room in our, in our little home, in our little bungalow in Indianapolis. I was young in the marriage. I didn't know then that you're not necessarily supposed to let uh, a bunch of folks, strangers, sleep on your couch uh, without telling your wife. Sorry about that, honey. 
But the truth of the matter is, I was obeying the voice of God and he began to lead me into the wild. I'm telling you right now, if you begin to pray, God use me. If you begin to become a house of prayer, God will lead you into places that might cost you everything. A justice without sacrifice is not justice at all. In 2003, I was in a prayer meeting and I had a vision of a young black man staring a gun in the face. It was clearly urban America and then the, the, background, uh, the, the background shifted and it was sub-Saharan desert and he was still staring a gun in the face. And I heard the Lord in the vision say, these are warriors without fear and you will lead armies. I came out of the vision and the pastor who was leading the prayer meeting said, JT, why don't you come up here and pray for God to raise up African-Americans out of the inner cities and send them as missionaries to the nations. I knew that that moment of, of, of kind of prophetic vision was an invitation to an assignment. I'm here to tell you that the revelation you receive in prayer will usually lead to an invitation. In 2004, right after that, I was in another staff prayer meeting, and because I'd been serving in the, the urban environments and I was face-to-face -face with tragedies and all kinds of, of complex situations in this low-income community, while I was there, I, in the prayer meeting, everybody on staff was overseeing different areas of church and ministry and, and movement, and I'm we begin to pray about the inner cities and all of a sudden what erupted from my belly, what erupted out of me was a groan and I could not control it. We're praying for the inner city and all of a sudden tears form in my eyes and I start silently weeping and then the weeping gets louder <laughs> and then it turns into a loud groan like a ah, like a scream and I couldn't the more I tried not to yell the louder I was getting and so then the the leader the pastor of the prayer meeting says JT this is really distracting it does not take all of that they're like JT just go out in the hall um you're 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 totally ruining the vibe here bro and I'm like embarrassed, there's like 70 leaders in the room. And I go out in the hall and then this man comes to me and he says, JT, I know exactly what that was. He says, and I know exactly who you are. He says, that's called a travail and you can come pray with me at any time. I want you to know that in Isaiah 66 it says, can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, everybody say travail. She brought forth her sons. A travail is what a woman sounds like when she's in labor. The apostle Paul travailed, and in, in the book of Galatians it says, my children with whom I again labor in Christ, and labor until Christ is formed in you. There was a groan on the inside. He had tears from heaven that gave birth to movement, that gave birth to sons and daughters. God is looking for a church in Portland that carries a travail that's not born of earthly uh, compassion, just, hey, we see things are bad in our city, we should do something about it. God wants to raise up a house of prayer that gets the, the groan of heaven when the travail of heaven, there's a, there's a groan in heaven, he doesn't just just long uh, uh, to, to, 
to, to, to meet with us. God is groaning for the kingdom of God to come and the earth is groaning as well. And so when the groans of the earth and the groans of heaven meet through the groan of a groaning house of prayer, suddenly birth happens and something dramatic shifts. The water breaks and cities and nations are transformed in a moment. That's what happened in the historic civil rights movement. There was a groan that had been built up over hundreds of years and suddenly the groan and the crescendo created this kairos moment of transformation. God wants to give us tears from heaven, not tears that are generated through, uh, through virtue signaling and finger pointing and I need you to feel this way. Why don't you feel that way? If you don't feel the way I feel, you're not holy. You don't love Jesus. It, we cannot uh, condemn one another into caring about justice issues. You need heaven to lay hold of your spirit and your soul and burst something in you that will give you authority and power to be a change agent in the earth. Prayer is the way that happens.